welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi. Joining me once again, Jay Ziek. Jay, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Tim. Jay, tonight we have a special guest. Who is it? The legendary, the one and only Chip Midnight. I built it up even more this time than the time we previously did this. <laughs> Chip, yeah. how are you? I'm doing good. I was going to say that uh, that's quite an introduction. I don't know if I'm going to be able to live up to it, but I'll see what I can do. Oh, sure you will. You're going to bring a special flair to tonight's episode because you probably know this record better than um, the people who recorded it because you, you have been a champion of uh, triple fast action for as long as I have been reading your stuff and have known you in the Columbus music scene, uh, which is probably going on now like 10 years. Yep. Yeah. Right. Tell us a little bit about your. Um, I you know I, I know you you've written for a number of what we call them, uh, magazines and newspapers. I want to say like you know you call like Sirius is like satellite radio and then terrestrial radio. Is it, do you call them like terrestrial magazines? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, yeah, I've done a lot of print writing, um, a lot more web writing because it's uh, a lot easier to do and quicker to do. But yeah, I've done uh, written for a, a local magazine called Move for a couple of years and then kind of progressed from there. So right now I'm writing for donewaiting.com. I have my own site, atomicned.com, and I write for uh, the Big Takeover magazine. Which is my favorite music magazine of all time. I do not miss an episode of the Big Takeover. Yeah, um, I mean, it was such an honor to be asked to write for them. I, I'm just like you, I've been a reader for 15 years and uh, just got very lucky, had a great opportunity. Um, a band was coming to town that they had written some really nice things about. I offered to interview them, and uh, what do they say? The rest is history. Sure. That's uh, Jack Rabbit, right? Yes. Yeah. He gave us one of our first reviews. It was a, a highlight of our band's uh, existence. Yeah, he gave us a positive review, which was astounding. <laughs> we did buy an ad, so that may have had something to do with it, but well, maybe he liked it. I don't know. Just a little payola. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's get into the record. We are reviewing Triple Fast Action's uh, debut broadcaster. Um, I usually start out with a little bit of history, so I'll just do a little bit of quick history and then we'll get into it. Uh, formed in 95, signed to Capitol. I just thought this was interesting. Chicago, I know Seattle got a little pub in the early 90s, but Chicago had an amazing streak of bands getting signed. Smashing Pumpkins, Smoking Popes, Ruka Salt, Liz Fair, Hum, uh, Red Red Meat, Fig Dish, Urge Overkill, Stabbing Westward, Menthol. That's just to name the names that people are probably going to know if they were into 90s music. That's pretty wow. impressive. Loud Lucy. Loud Lucy. There's another one, which we'll probably review in another 10 or 12 or 100 episodes. Yep. Um, Broadcaster came out in 96. The band left. Uh, the label went to Deep Elm, released a second record, and then broke up in 98. West Kid has uh, managed Local H and Cheap Trick and the Damwells and has played uh, guitar in Local H. And the drummer, uh, Brian St. Clair, is now in Local H, and he was the guitar tech for Bunny Carlos of uh, Cheap Trick. And I think Cheap Trick keep coming, uh, keeps coming up uh, when you talk about Triple Fast Action, and I think it's going to come up more later. As, a, as an influence for this band. But we just start out with me asking Jay uh, what he thought of the record. So, Jay, what did you think of the record? Well, I'll, I'll give my quick impressions. I'm really I'm really uh, interested in hearing Chip's take because uh, um, 
this is the first time I've heard it. Um, I knew the band name. It was one of those, again, uh, it seems to be a theme in this this podcast. One of those bands you, you know the name of, but you know maybe heard a song here or there, but really uh, didn't invest much time listening to the album. Um, I think my general impressions were, you know, first couple listens, uh, I heard a lot of, at the best moments, heard a lot of super drag. Inf- or not influence, but sort of uh, similarities, uh, especially with his voice. And at times they, when they would get, um, you know, when you'd hear a hook or, or something, a pop element, that's what band kept coming to mind to me would be super drag, especially the early super drag stuff before they got to be more of a hot, hard rock uh, uh, sound. Um, my big criticism would be, you know, the the songs go on much longer than they need to and 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 that it is across I think the whole album so about the two and a half to three minute mark I found myself being like okay that was that was a pretty good song I you know there was elements I like that there was a good hook I want to listen to that again and I, I would look up and realize oh wow there's a whole two minutes to go yet <laughs> Or a minute and a half left of the song. Let's see what happens. And basically, nothing different would happen. It would be, uh, you know, either repeating the same part again, or they would go into these weird, like, instrumental parts that would, you know, not really do anything that interesting. Um, it kind of made me wonder, from a producer standpoint, you know, who produced this album, and if they really got somebody to be, you know. Um, sort of really critical with them and, and and really you know got them focused that they can make a really great uh you know pop rock uh hard rock album but this one seemed to be a little bit at times a little bit meandering uh production wise it's pretty good they use a lot of f- it seems like they use the the big muff or the fuzz on just about every instrument at times which uh it sometimes sounds great other times you're you're wanting a little bit of difference there but I think in general there are definitely some some good moments, particularly, um, you know, uh, let's see what songs I got here that I called out. Uh, Cheery was one. It's got a great drum intro. It's got a great hook. Definitely, when I when I turned the song off, I sort of found myself walking around the house singing it. And then there's uh, even some of the, there's a couple songs on here where it's really just a guitar and a vocal that you keep thinking, oh wow, they're going to kick in at some point, and they don't. It's just sort of like a quiet, not a ballad, but just this quiet sort of vocal and and guitar thing that it's sort of if you stick with it, it works. Um, it's kind of unconventional, but it's it, but it's still kind of cool. Um, so. I think for a first release, it's definitely interesting. It makes me, you know, wonder. I assume they had more albums after this, and 
makes me wonder what those started to sound like and if they started to get a little bit more focused and um, definitive in terms of you know what their sound was because on this album I would say um, it would seem as though they haven't quite figured out what makes them unique but uh, I would love to hear what Chip thinks of it yeah yeah this that's why we brought you in Chip because yeah. we, we definitely want to hear what you've got to say about this record so before I talk about this record this the second record Cattlemen don't is um, is kind of all over the place as well and I think that's what I like about them mm-hmm. is that it, I, I don't feel like I'm listening to the same song for 10 or 12 tracks all the way through but I remember my first impression so um, I had a friend who worked for Sony he's a college intern and he had seen Triple Fast Action at uh, CMJ convention and had told me that all the labels were out checking them out and that they were going to be the next big thing and a year later I went back to uh, I went to CMJ a year later and uh I don't know if they, I guess they had been signed at that point to Capitol. The record hadn't come out, but my first impression, I saw him at a showcase and um, I came back and wrote about him and, and described him as a cross. And this is early in my writing career, so excuse the uh, years later, I can see how wrong this is. But I described him as a cross between um, Better Than Ezra and Green Day. <laughs> so I kind of heard a, a little bit of a, um, not a real punk sound to them. But I also heard a real kind of commercial radio sound to him. Uh, like I said, years later, I, I I won't stand by that at all. Um, but I think, like you said early on, I think there's definitely that cheap trick Chicago sound. There's some Smashing pumpkin sound to some of the guitars. Um, but but I always find it hard to describe them to other people, and especially because the songs are kind of I don't know if I want to say all of it. They all. Are, are all over the place, but I don't think that's a bad thing in this case. I like the diversity of the songs again. But yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the track list right now, and and to me, there's not a there's not a, a clunker of, in the bunch. I mean, I Jay, you're right. I mean, the song the songs do tend to drag on a little bit, but once again, I mean, this is probably one of my five favorite records ever. So if every song was ten minutes, I probably would have loved it as well. Well, it's one of those things where some of these songs, I'm I'm picturing myself seeing the band live, and I'm thinking. Well, you know, live, this sort of jam they're doing at the end, you're reprising the same part and really just kind of playing with with sounds and stuff would be very cool live. On an album, I'm just, I keep questioning, like, how did the producer not step in and say, hey, hey, guys, uh, you know, we're trying to make a record here that people will buy, and you guys have been playing you know, this, this noisy riff and three chords for ten minutes, or, you know, five minutes now. Maybe we should go ahead and lop this off and think about making this into a radio single um, so I think I can answer I think I can answer that and uh, you know I don't know too much about the producer I mean I know who it is um, and based on what I know about him uh, I'm sure he wasn't in there uh, telling him to, to keep things short it was, um, Don Fleming okay who was in Gumball help me out guys I mean he had some Sonic Youth connections maybe um Ah, there you go. That makes sense. I think, I think, but I, I know that when I I interviewed West right West Kid the singer right after this album came out, and um, I believe he told me that as they were recording the record, they would come into the studio every day, and and Don would be sitting behind uh, the recording console with um, his sunglasses on. So I think that kind of set the tone for how much involvement he had with the record and kind of <laughs> his attitude towards the record. Yeah, well, I'm pretty just... sure there's probably some some other descriptions of. of 
him and his um, maybe state of mind. So I got during uh, the recording of that. Dinosaur Junior, Sonic Youth Goo, Teenage Fan Club, Bandwagon esque. Yep. Uh, Gumball, Screaming Tree, Sweet Oblivion, The Posies, Fro- Posies Frosting on the Beater. Um, so he was he was yeah. in Gumball. Okay. I mean, he was a singer for gum, singer guitarist for Gumball, but yeah, those other bands he worked on as producer and yeah. that kind of stuff. So, so I think when you take it into that context, you can you can maybe see why this record ended up the way it did. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, he's sort of the producer where he's like, you know, I'm gonna capture what the band sounds like live, and that's what my job is. Right. Um, you know, other producers kind of come in and say, well, let's think about the way that you know the song's structured, and let's tighten this up and that, and. You know, they get really involved. Um, I think because I kept hearing these really powerful hooks and just these little elements. It's like, man, if you really honed in on that, you could make something really cool. And I couldn't help but sort of be a producer. <laughs> so I'm listening to it in a weird way, thinking like, wow, how, how did somebody not pull these guys aside and say, really focus on this? And then, you know, the five-minute jam at the end, let's just, that works live, but let's not put that on the record. But, you know, hey, I mean, if you look at the albums he worked with, you know he's got a lot of Sonic Youth albums on his on his uh, resume here. So when you're working with a band like that, I'm sure you're not uh, telling them how to write a song. You're basically making sure that everything's engineered correctly, and you're hitting record and letting them do their thing. So that's probably the the same approach he took with this band. So if you've ever if, if you have a chance to check out um, the documentary Golden Days about the Damwells, Wes um, managed them for a while. Stop managing for a while, and he's back kind of with the group but in that documentary he well he didn't produce their stuff he's definitely um instrumental in how they record and so the things you were just mentioning is kind of funny because now i see you know west 10 years later having that critical editing hat on as he's listening to the damn world and, and talking about you know making it concise and clear and and short and hooks and hits and all that kind of stuff so it maybe it was you know just maturing over time right and then now that he's not in a band he he's able to look back and, and kind of get that mm-hmm. tim what were your thoughts on this album i i agree with a lot with, what with what you said about some of the songs maybe carrying on a little bit i didn't remember this record from back when uh, we had it at the radio station so listening to it once you got past the what, what I would call like the introduction song, which is Aerosmith, which is just a guitar and vocals, and it's kind of like a low-key opening, those first three tracks, um, Anna Get Your Gun, Revved Up, and Bird Again, are just awesome songs. Mm-hmm. The choruses are so good, especially on Anna Get Your Gun and Revved Up. They got the, the female vocal on Revved Up. Yeah. And then on Anna Get Your Gun, you got like the woo-hoo-hoos and the... Um, there's a great just like double bend single note guitar line that goes throughout that song. It's just really cool and simple.
I kept getting, you know, we talked about the Chicago and the cheap trick influence. I kept getting like, it was like a half, half the band sound came from that heavy power pop of cheap trick. And then I was getting, you know, obviously like you want to say Nirvana because there was the, the, the quote unquote grunge element, but there was definitely a aspect, especially on track, I, uh, ne- track 10, never, ever care. Mm-hmm. The, the guitar and bass tone totally sounded like, you know, you've got the, anytime you drop the bass out or drop the guitars out and just have a bass uh, in the verses, people go, well, that sounds like Nirvana. But that had a really, you know, bleach era Nirvana sound to it, which is the only era I can really listen to anymore as far as Nirvana goes. I can't really listen to like In Utero or, or Nevermind, uh, you know, for enjoyment because it's been so they've been so overplayed. I can go back and listen to the earlier stuff and sort of get some enjoyment out of that. Um, the one thing I wrote down while I was listening to this is that um, if you take the band The Hives, this they should be paying royalties to Triple Fast Action because so many of the songs reminded me of some stuff that The Hives have done, but that, that The Hives just did it shorter. And, and more, like, polished and produced. Yeah, but essentially, like, you know, you take, like I said, Anna Get Your Gun, Revved Up, American City World, those tracks, they, they could be radio singles. I mean, even now. I mean, they are they're incredibly catchy um, choruses and awesome uh, guitar playing and, and rhythm section stuff. I, some of the slower things I didn't care for. Um, I don't know what it was with bands in the '90s, but a lot of them like to play or put the the last track on or make the last track verse and a chorus, and then eight minutes of repeating uh, a single chord progression we did it we had on the seed record where they just played yeah. the last song for 12 minutes and it's like you didn't need to do <laughs> well you know what that that's an interesting point i thought about that as i was reviewing this this record in particular was that this was the time when i think you saw a lot of bands because cds could be as long as you wanted essentially you know you saw bands including one or two tracks too much you saw tra- so you saw songs being one or two minutes too long. Sort of the the discipline that vinyl made you have in terms of you know you know, you can only fit so much stuff on a vinyl, a record or even on a cassette. It sort of made you edit yourself because the, the the format just made you do it. CD opened the door to like oh wow we can have you know fourteen or fifteen songs on here, and they all can be five minutes long. Why not? You know this is one of those albums where along with the pro- producer sort of being a little bit hands-off maybe wonder you know if you're talking like this is what maybe 95 96 yeah it came out in 96 but it i think it was recorded in 95 and i remember when i talked to west capital held it because um check out your music trivia here uh they didn't release it in at the end of 95 because anybody because are you talking because there's something else that was released because or, Capitol reissued the, the first of the Beatles records. Oh. And so they, did, they didn't want, or I don't know if it was the first of the Beatles records, but they didn't want to bump up against, put a new record out by a new band when they were promoting the Beatles so heavily. So the record actually came out almost a year after it was originally finished. <laughs> That's a Wow. Because I'm sure the band was like, holy crap, we're on Capitol. We're on the same label as the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> and they get screwed by it. They're like, yeah. shit. <laughs> so what... In terms of, so this band, give me a little, so after this album comes out, 
you mentioned they do a second album that's sort of also all over the place in terms of style. Is that the only yeah. album they did after that, or? Yeah, so Cattlemen Don't came out, like Tim said, on Deep Elm. Um, uh, John Agnello produced that one. Okay. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, and he, he, I don't know, you guys are familiar with him, right? I mean, he did a ton of stuff in the 90s, too. Did he work on, um, he was kind of known for having, uh, working with, like, a lot of power pop bands, like, not power pop, but, like, punk pop. Yeah. Am I thinking yeah. of that? Is that the right guy? Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, and I think he might have had some Dinosaur Jr. connections as well. Hmm. Might have produced some of their stuff. So they put that record out. Um, their guitar player, Ronnie, left the band, I believe, after the recording of the record was done. Kind of left them without a guitar player. West plays guitar, too, but... Uh, without a lead guitar player. So touring, they ended up picking up basically whoever was available in Chicago at the time. So Scott Lucas from Local H did shows with them. Blake Smith from Fig Dish did shows with them. A guy named Sean Rice from Made to Fade did shows with them. Uh, there was a band called um, Muchacha, and the guitar player from that band did shows with them. So they did do a lot of touring, but that guitar spot was always changing out for whoever was available at the time. Um, you know, I, I don't know what ultimately led to the, the demise and the, the final breakup, but they did do a, there, there was a final breakup. They did a, um, a final show at the Metro in Chicago that sold out uh, that I drove up for. And um, that was a bad time, too, with the Chicago bands, because, I mean, Veruca Salt broke up around that time. Fig Dish broke up around that time. What year would this have been? already broken up. What's that? What year would, would this have been? Uh, probably 98. Okay. Yeah, 98. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's like all these bands had kind of gotten these major deals, gone out on tours, put out records, and, and it all kind of seemed to fall apart for all of them around the same period. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so they did the final show at the Metro where they played every song they'd ever recorded. So they did all of Broadcaster, all of Cattlemen Don't. And then, you know, this was the early days of the internet. So they had a bunch of B-sides and unreleased stuff. And you used to be able to email West and he would send you a copy. Mm-hmm. Um, he would just burn CDRs for people. And I don't I don't even know how you would get that today. Although, I can tell you that I have it, and I'd be happy to post it somewhere. So, oh, keep looking for it. I have, I think it's about like a 15-song B-side unreleased stuff. Um, it, it's so funny to me because being unfamiliar with ELO, Triple Fast Action did a cover of Mr. Blue Sky. Oh, man. Really? And the first, I mean... Every time I would hear it, in the, it was in like Boogie Nights, maybe. It was in a movie, and it, I'd seen it in commercials, and I'd be like, man, they're covering Triple Fast Action. <laughs> and then I'd go back to realize that it was actually an ELO song that Triple oh, Fast Action was covering, and it was ELO's version I kept hearing. But it's very it's very um, faithful to the original, other than the biggest difference is, is Wes's vocals are a little, I don't know, scratchier than, than yeah. Jeff Link. But, yeah. Um, other than that, it's they're very similar sounding. But yeah, they did that final show, and uh, believe me, I, I email Wes at least once or twice a year begging him to do at least one more reunion show, and he doesn't seem to have much interest. Hmm. Um, the bass player, Kevin Tiesta, has actually gone on and done... He did a number of solo records for um, Parasol Records, hmm. kind of in the early part of the 2000s, probably about four or five, very kind of Elliott Smith sounding... George Harrison sounding kind of really mellow, quiet, melodic stuff. His his playing really, you know, on this album 
carries a lot. It's particularly uh, a lot of the intros of the songs and a lot of the verses. It's very uh, focused on the bass. And uh, right. did they have two guitar players? Yeah, so Wes, yeah, Wes and, um, and then this guy Ronnie played lead guitar on the two records. Okay. Cause almost Ron, Ronnie, Ronnie right. dropped out to, to start a family or to keep going with his family. I think um, he was kind of done with the rock and roll lifestyle before the rest of the guys were. Hmm. Yeah, at times the guitars are, mm, you know, a bit, you know, boilerplate, not very interesting. And it's really the bass that carries it. So that's interesting that he uh, sort of did solo stuff. It, it, I guess in a way it makes sense because... Um, melodically, he was uh, other than the vocal, he was carrying a, a lot of the a lot of the songs at times. Right. That's cool. So, so the one other thing I can I can mention about Triple Fast Action, and it's um, I guess more out of laziness on my part than anything else. But um, <laughs> years ago, probably late, shortly after they broke up, when I was writing for Moonlight, interview bands that were kind of in the same same sound of the same scene. Um, Frog Pond. I don't know if you remember them. Uh, yeah, Columbia. Two, couple couple of women in the band um, interviewed them, and somehow, like I said, Triple Fest Action was always a band that I always felt like nobody knew about, but I loved. And I'd start to mention them to people, and and I was surprised at how many musicians knew about them and loved them. And so, uh, you know, the bright idea hatched with me to to get these bands to do a tribute album for them. Of course, me not knowing anything about how to put a tribute album together, I was just kind of emailing anybody and everybody that I knew, all the Chicago bands that were friends with them. And um, interestingly enough, I, I got um, over the course, this has been a product that's been going on for over 10 years now, uh, but I do have about 15 songs that bands have recorded. Um, now I just have to figure out the best way to put it out. Back in the day, I would have put it out on a CD but I don't think that's a viable option and I don't have the money to do that. So yeah. um, once again, there, there may be something that I could throw up on a site somewhere as just a free download. Uh, but it's interesting to hear some different interpretations of, of their song. Who, who are some of the artists that contributed to that? Not a lot of uh, recognizable names, but um, uh, Christian Lane actually from Loud Lucy was somebody who I contacted uh, many years later. Uh, he's now out in California. Um, he ended up doing one of the songs on Broadcaster. I can't remember which one. But locally within Columbus, uh, Sean Gardner did a, did a song. Huh. Don't. Um, I think he did it with Melty Melty. I think that was a band that he was recorded that song with. So I, so I started writing about this and posting about this. And this guy from uh, Pennsylvania named Alan, who I was on an email list with, heard about this idea thought it was great, wanted to be involved as much as he could, wanted to help me out. Like I said, I was kind of going a little bit too slow with it, so he jumped off and ended up doing a Jellyfish tribute album. All right. Have you guys heard that one? No. no. I'm a Jellyfish fan, so. Yeah, so, awesome. um, so he ended up getting all of their recorded songs covered on this record. And, wow. you know, I think he did moderately successful at that and ended up doing a Posey's tribute album. Um, and so all this whole time we keep talking back and forth about, you know, Posies and, and Jellyfish have bigger fan bases and can sell more records than a Triple Best Action tribute. But he reached out to the bands that were doing songs for those albums and bands who had never heard Triple Fest Action, he would kind of pick out songs that he'd want them to cover, send it out to them. And so we ended up getting, um, we probably have two or three bands from Australia 
somehow he hooked up uh, this connection in Australia and these people would hear a song one day, go into a studio and they'd send us back a, a, a version within a week. So wow. it's, it's pretty interesting, pretty diverse, pretty, um, you know, some bands keep it very close to the vest and do it just the way it was. And some bands really kind of take some chances on some stuff. So he's like a, he's like a tribute album guru. He is. And he, you know, he has no, he has no, um, record label. He's a music fan who just, he felt like the, similar to the way I do with Triple Fast Action, like Jellyfish and Posies are, are so influential to, to him and to the kind of music he loved. And he knew that other people loved those bands the way he did. And he just was more the facilitator of all this stuff. So That's awesome. So that long story being that, like I said, I think I'll just make this available for a free download somewhere. And I'll, I'll obviously let everybody know where and when they can get it. Perhaps on AtomicNet.com. I believe that might be a good idea. Which is your website. It is. We gotta throw we gotta do a little you know, we're getting to the end, so we should probably do some some pimping of the um of the wares. <laughs> so uh big takeover, that's where people can read you and uh Atomic Ned and um any place else? Uh done waiting. And done waiting. Yep. Awesome. Well I you know, this was a cool one. I think this is one that I'm this is gonna stay in my iPod uh, for for a while because I feel like um it's a grower, not a shower. Yeah. <laughs> First listen, you're like, ah, I don't know. And then second listen, you're like, okay, there's some interesting things going on here. And, you know, third, fourth listen, all of a sudden the hooks start sinking in and, and you're, uh, you're humming the songs. And, you know, there's some, there's some moments on here that you're, you know, singing in your head and stuff. So, yeah. So, I'll Chip, you guys, get, you guys will have to get... I'll make sure you guys get copies of Cattlemen Don't because I'd be interested in your feedback on that one. Oh, that's coming up. Don't worry. I've already we've already secured a copy. Oh, okay. And uh, we'll be doing that. We've only got like I don't know like five or six thousand obscure bands from the '90s to yeah. to review. So I'm just I'm I'm looking at my CDs right now and I, I I've got another thousand to add to your list. <laughs> <laughs> we just got a list today and literally one of the names I I, I researched every one of the bands. And one of them was a band that only released a live cassette, and that was it. They never actually put out an official album. Oh, come on. I am not kidding you. <laughs> was it at least sounded like a mega huge label? No, I think it was like a home recording. Oh, come on. I'm telling you, we're going to take it. We're going to review um, songs that weren't even written, that people just played live uh, at, at an open just, mic night. Songs people so, just thought about? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that, that brings me, that's a great, uh, one of my biggest quests has been, so I saw Triple Fest Action on a broadcaster tour, and they used to do a cover, really odd timing, they did a cover of Sparkle Horses that um, someday I will treat you good. Oh, wow. Uh. Sparkle Horse and Triple Fest Action were actually out at the same time, those records came out at the same time, and I, I, I don't know why they covered it, but I saw them do that a couple times, and... I'm convinced somebody somewhere taped it, and I have yet to ever find a copy. So if anybody's listening to this and has a bootleg cassette, I want to hear it. Is Sparkle Horse a Chicago band too? No, they. I think they were Virginia, maybe. Okay. But they both they both were signed to Capitol at the yeah. same time. They both started out, and they. I, I I would guess they probably played some showcase type shows together. And... Very cool. All right, people, you have heard the the request from Chip. Uh, our our legions of fan out there all 
four or three or however many there are. Um, uh, 13 friends on Facebook. I want you to check your audio recording devices and your cassettes from the mid-90s and make sure that you don't have a copy of um, Sparkle Horse cover by Triple Fast Action. Never underestimate the power of music nerds. We can That's find true. anything. <laughs> we can find anything. We can. All right. Chip, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, you, This was awesome. Thanks very much. We will definitely be um, calling upon you in the future because there are other uh, releases that I am sure that you have extensive knowledge about that we are mere neo- neophytes. Uh, <laughs> call, calling upon you, is that a Striper song? Ooh, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's Jay's um, uh, Midnight Thunder podcast reviewing... Uh, obscure sleaze bees and uh, obscure bands from the uh, we're gonna 80s. Go, we're going to go through the whole rock scan catalog. <laughs> you're still, yeah, that's still my language you're talking. <laughs> that, that, that'll be a sister podcast. <laughs> that'll come out on, on Friday nights with a, with, a, with a bottle of Jack Daniels. Yeah, it needs to be recorded much later in the night. Yes. <laughs> All right, we're wrapping it up. Another great episode. Jay, thank you. Chip, thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Dig Me Out. Visit the Dig Me Out podcast at digmeoutpodcast.blogspot.com. Join our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at Dig Me Out Podcast. Podcast.